Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week on Investment Uncut, we're delighted to welcome Ben Seeger-Scott, Head of Multi-Asset at Private Wealth Manager Tilney. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hi, Ben. Before we start with the meat of the discussion, could you just tell us a bit about what Tilney does and particularly your role within Tilney? So Tilney is a large wealth manager. We've got lots of different services, discretionary management for individuals, all the way through to an execution-only platform where, where investors can come and invest themselves. And we've got on the order of 25 billion under management, probably around sort of 100,000 clients at varying different levels. My role as head of multi-assets, actually it encompasses a huge range of different areas, but really what I'm there to do is try and develop and then deploy the house investment strategy. So that's all the way from macroeconomic setting our asset allocation, picking instruments, be those funds or stocks, through to portfolio construction for some of our sort of flagship fund-to-fund ranges. So it really encompasses absolutely everything. Indeed. Cool. Looking forward to getting into that in a second. But before we do, Ben, why don't you tell us one thing that we should know about you that we won't find on your CV or your LinkedIn profile? Well, I originally trained as a biochemist, so I did my PhD in DNA metabolism. So I've got a doctorate. I tend not to mention it because as soon as I tell them, historically, when I've told this biochemistry, it was immediate reaction is, well, what on earth are you doing here? But at the moment, it has slightly more relevance. Yeah, you could be out there finding vaccines or something or treatments and all that sort of stuff. I don't think I was good enough. I think I probably left before I was found out. So Ben, I was particularly interested. So you mentioned that one of the key sort of elements of your role is developing the house investment strategy and particularly sort of asset allocation. I guess really keen to kind of hear your thoughts on when you're setting asset allocation, where do you start? What process do you follow? What's your thought process? Well, just on asset allocation, we follow a top-down process and the starting point is really strategic asset allocation. So there we use a mathematical model. People will hear it referred to as an efficient frontier, but really that takes a long-term view you look at pretty simple metrics in the market. So you can take earnings, expectations, valuations, particularly how different asset classes move relative to each other. Then you just set up a strategic framework. So it says on a 10-year view, what's the best way to combine these asset classes to create a framework? And I think that's really important because that helps take out some of the cognitive bias and the human biases. I know last season you had a really good episode talking all about behavioural biases. And that was really interesting. And that's something that we think a lot about. Starting with that framework helps to eliminate a lot of those initial biases. And then off that framework, then we do our tactical allocation. So that's myself and various teams and committees. Then we look at what's happening in the here and now, try and look at monetary policy, what are central banks doing, what are governments doing, what's the environment today? And we tilt that strategic framework. So it's sort of got those two distinct phases. But the most important point is that deep mathematical basis is our starting point. And presumably, you said you've got a huge range of clients. So presumably, you're trying to come up with a range of different asset allocations to match different sort of risk levels. Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got ostensibly seven different models. It's just a continuum, really, starting from the, the sort of the lowest risk clients, which is really 
there we're just trying to preserve purchasing power i think as soon as you start investing you're taking on the level of risk but we start all the way from just trying to preserve your purchasing power through to the highest risk end which is very heavy in equities and everywhere in between even preserving purchasing power has got much tougher recently hasn't it with real yields where they are there was a time when you could invest in gilts and do a pretty good job of that but i suppose that must have challenged you a little bit at that end recently i think it's Arguably, it's challenging clients more. I think that there is a risk being on this side of the fence. You become very academic and we are used to, you take your base rate set by the Bank of England and all of your different returns run off that. So to some extent, you style your returns up and down. I think you're exactly right though for clients. I know quite a few just pre-global financial crisis, they put it in a nice high yielding ISA or locked away in a bank for an extended period of time. And then over the last decade or so, they've come to us and they're like, well, I could get 7% quite comfortably. How much more can I get investing? And you need to explain, well, the reality is that base rates run off everything else. So I think, unfortunately, many investors now are faced either you can stick where you are in your risk profile and accept a lower return, or you need to accept higher risk if you want to generate a return that's going to keep pace or exceed inflation. It's, it's a very difficult time both preserving purchasing power and particularly for for income investors as well. And when you're talking about different risk profiles, is risk volatility in this context, is that the key sort of risk that your investors are concerned about? Or are there any other sort of, I guess, more bespoke ways of looking at risk that some of your clients might use? When I talk to my financial planning colleagues, they look much more at regulatory or tax-based risk, sequencing risk, all of those lifestyle pathways that are really important to the end client. On my side, it's much more around investment risk. Partly that's volatility. Actually, we tend to think more in terms of drawdown. So volatility is related. Obviously, volatility is really more a measure of uncertainty. But for our clients, they want very much, what's that mean? What's my probability of a loss? So actually, that's what's more embedded into our mathematical models rather than volatility. And you mentioned just before that it's been particularly difficult for clients with a focus on income. And we've discussed that also in the past on this podcast. For those sort of clients looking for higher levels of income, how have they been sort of reacting to recent market conditions or how have you altered their asset allocation to adjust for that? Well, unfortunately, there have been two different reactions. As we know, this immediate post-lockdown period, whilst we've seen a boost in a lot of risk assets, a lot of income yielding assets because we've seen dividend cuts, A lot of those investors have been slightly disappointed because the area of the market they're in hasn't recovered as much, particularly the headline readings that you see on the news. So I think there is a level of trepidation out there. I think some clients, particularly if you've got a good relationship and your financial planner is able to move you more towards a strategy that you can potentially harvest some of those capital gains, so draw down on your asset pool rather than just relying on a natural income is one route. I think there's a greater, particularly looking at some of the fixed income areas, you can look at options around corporate bonds, even some of the more advanced strategies. Now, on a total term basis, I think can be challenged, but you get some slightly more advanced strategies, cover call strategies, for example, a mechanism where you can turn potential capital gain into a form of income is one route. And certain funds such as absolute return funds, there's more of those now particularly the lower risk end that can generate a natural income. So there are options. A lot of it involves getting away from equities. But the reality is when interest rates are very low, it is hard to generate a natural income without taking on higher levels of risk. 
Do you have a mandate to come up with asset allocations that are natural income generating, or are you more thinking about it in a total return sense and then just sort of letting clients draw down on the units if they want to? We tend not to consider it aggressively as part of the asset allocation. I think we think to think about asset allocation more in terms of risk. It's the big shift we've seen over the last couple of decades. It used to be income investors just bought fixed incomes. They gave you a nice high yield and high risk investors took equities. And actually, post global financial crisis, we've seen uh, the yields from fixed income and equities align a lot more closely. It tends to be for us, though, whilst we'll change a little bit around asset allocation for income, particularly in the mix of income yielding assets, it tends to come through more instrument selection. So an income investor might have more equity income funds in the equity component, whereas uh, a more growth orientated investor might have a different blend of equities and fund types within that. We've heard kind of your general approach to asset allocation. How has that changed, I suppose I should say, in the last six months? And how have you sort of been reacting to the events of recent months that we've seen? It's certainly been challenging. Investments are always challenging in one guise or another. In the depths of the crisis, a bit like most others, investment professionals, I think, the main operating mode was not to try and trade too much in the middle of the crisis when markets are trading quite dysfunctionally. There's not very much information. All there is is a lot of emotion. So we avoided trading too much. What we tend to do then, actually, we become even more engaged with our clients because I think there you need to communicate with clients, tell them not to panic. And actually, rather than trading around our positions, we spend most of our time explaining to clients, this has always been embedded in your risk profile. There is a chance that once every 10 or 20 years, you have these sharp drawdowns. So the response is usually not to do very much. Now, we did a couple of things. We aside from holding our positions, and sometimes inaction is the right course of action. But within that, we also, you know, we increased our gold exposure because our view shifted a little bit around then. And on the six-month view, we've made a few other changes. We've increased, for example, some positions that would benefit from inflation. But all of that comes from the same place, which isn't necessarily reacting to what's happening now, but it is saying on the long-term view, and that's where we're long-term investors from now into the long term, has that long term outlook changed? And for us, one of the things that has changed is our view on inflation. And we think inflation on the medium term is much more likely to come through. So that is driven by relatively short term events, but it's still a longer term view that we're expressing there. That is really interesting about the point around gold. I mean, I think one of the big questions a lot of investors are weighing up right now is how they should look at asset allocation in a sort of a zero rate world where bonds are not really doing much for them. And one of the questions, I guess, that you come to there pretty quickly is, does gold have a role in that? One of the big arguments against gold is always there's no income attached, but when bonds don't have that either, it maybe balances up a bit. So you've staked out quite clearly your view on that. I guess you think gold should be in there. And that's because you're sort of trying to balance up these inflation risks. Is that how you sort of articulate that? There's a couple of different reasons, and it's annoying now because we've been invested for gold for five or six years, and I hate gold. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. On a strategic basis, under a normal circumstance, I'm entirely with Warren Buffett on this. It's just a shiny yellow metal. You pay people to stick out the ground in one place, and you lock it in a box somewhere else. It has no real intrinsic value. All its value is extrinsic. But I think at the moment, there are specific characteristics that make it attractive. One is that the likelihood of inflation coming through, in our view, and gold tends to do well as a real store of value during periods of inflation. But also, I think as you see central banks start printing money, um, particularly aggressively, 
I think that gold has a place as a perceived store of wealth, basically acting as a pseudo currency. Sometimes when I talk about this with clients, currencies, if you start printing huge amounts, as with anything, if you increase supply, the price tends to drop. And that happens with currencies as well. But because you measure currencies versus each other, dollar, sterling and euro might not move too much compared to each other, but they could be falling in real terms just because they're all sort of printing. The way the way we sort of envisage it, if you imagine you're a skydiver and each of the skydivers is a different currency, you might just be fluctuating up and down slightly compared to each other, but actually you're all falling quite dramatically compared to something like the plane. So in that regard, the plane would be gold. And there is a view that perhaps gold that's been surging recently, certainly over the last couple of months, maybe it's less a case of gold is shooting up aggressively. Maybe that's more reflection that people think fiat currencies are going to be losing value. And the way you've implemented that gold for your clients, is that through an actively managed fund, an ETF, sort of direct holdings? Or what? can you talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. We go for physical gold holdings through an exchange traded commodity. Nice and simple. I've had the fortune to go to the gold vault and feel them. So, you know, lumps of gold safely secured in a vault is the way that we're expressing that. So when you talk about things, I mean, you've talked a lot about how you're aiming to preserve value in real terms. And so clearly there's a big risk for your clients that inflation runs away with you and their portfolio, maybe as it sat before you made some tweaks to it, wouldn't hold up very well. When you're communicating that sort of risk to clients, because it's not necessarily the risk of a big drawdown that you expect if you're holding equity investments. How do you communicate that sort of element of risk to your clients? I mean, do you do sort of scenario testing? Do you have phone calls and talk them through? Or how do you go about that process? Our relationship managers will often tailor it specifically to the client. Uh, In the background, we do things like scenario testing, but I think scenario testing is a useful tool. But the problem is the scenario you test against almost never happens again. You either take historical examples or or a guess, and I suspect there's only a handful of people globally that modelled a global pandemic. I think we talk more, we try to keep it relatable to clients. And I think if you explain it to them, understand that particularly older clients who are used to periods of much higher inflation. Those that lived through the oil shocks and inflation shocks in the 70s remember, and I think it's almost more a case, you show on a chart the purchasing power of a pound over the last 20 or 30 years. And just because it hasn't been around before doesn't mean it can't come back. I think we talk about Sony Walkmans quite a lot and how they're $150 when they first came out 40 years ago, and that's like $500 in today's money. And if you don't do anything about it, you've lost two thirds of the value of your assets. So that's our starting point. We talk about the long term, we talk about returns, real returns, so after inflation. Then we talk through the reasons that we are worried about inflation coming through, you know, monetary policy, government actions. We've talked a lot recently about earnings becoming less efficient. If you look at the last decade, companies have all been about let's maximize earnings. That's led to global supply chains quite fragile. And now everyone's realizing Maybe fragile supply chains aren't all that great. If you make them more resilient, that probably means that you're not going to get some of these disinflationary pressures coming through. So we talk through at length those sort of areas, but we write quite a lot of articles and newsletters, really taking people on our journey and trying to say in advance, here's what we're thinking, here's the reasons. And that's generally the route. Yeah, I suppose one way to bring out inflation to a lot of people is I guess most people can remember how much a Mars bar cost when they were a kid kind of thing. And like, I'm sure I can remember it costing like 20 something P, which would have been in the, like in the 90s sort of thing. And they got smaller as well, haven't they? I think nowadays a lot of things have. So I guess that's one illustration of inflation. But I mean, 
God, it must be an extraordinarily difficult time to be a financial advisor because you're balancing those two things, I guess, aren't you? You're trying to help people preserve their purchasing power, which does mean maybe trying to get your head around taking a bit of equity risk, even to just to do that. But we've just had a very clear demonstration of what equity risk can do to you over a short period of time. So trying to toe that line, I imagine, and say to your clients, hey, listen, don't panic so much. Let's not get too super over cautious here, because that in itself is also a bad thing. I mean, is that a familiar discussion, do you think, from your planners? It is, but it does tend to be with relatively few investors. You're right, I take the exact same point, but I almost look at it from the reverse. I think this period has been quite helpful because my concern, particularly up to sort of the middle of 2018, a lot of people thought investing is easy, stuff just goes up. (laughs) And it's the reminder for me, I think uncertainty and risk is a good thing. Ultimately, I think one of the misconceptions, certainly from my mind, I try and tell clients, they're like, oh, what do you think is going to happen to the stock market next month or around the vaccine? I don't try and predict the future. What I try and do is see what the risks are, balance it, and make sure that we're being paid a reasonable reward for taking that risk. And actually, the way I look at investing, this is money you're meant to be able to park away for an extended period of time. And you are better able to wear weather these short downturns because you don't need it now. You put that money into savings, that goes into the real economy, to businesses that need it today, for example. And if you have a long enough time horizon, you generally have a greater ability to weather these out. And over history, as long as you have a long enough time period, you've generally been better off in equities, even if you look at the global financial crisis. I think one of the charts that I look at, you have to look on a total return basis. But even if you've got your timing totally wrong and bought equities, just the peak before the crash, three years later, you're back to break even and then making money. And what we've seen now as well, we had the crash, it's been painful, they've recovered. You just need to make sure that you are focused on your time frame and your risk profile. And rather than worrying when markets fall, you should be thinking, yeah, this is the risk that I'm being rewarded for in the long term. And I need to be able to weather this out. And people say, do you think there's a crash coming? It's like these things are unpredictable and unknowable. If there was a market crash in the next 12 months and you would be put in serious difficulty because of that, actually, you need to go and have a look at your risk profile. But actually, if you don't need it in that time frame, and you're willing and able to take that risk, that's the time to run through it. And that's why we, we spend a lot of time coaching clients, particularly through March and April, saying this is exactly what we talked about. This is in our models. Actually, the 12 months drawdown was inside our thresholds for what might happen in one year in 20. So this is painful, but this is a normal part of the cycle. So I think that's actually a refreshing way to view these things. One metric that we quite commonly use with our clients is the sort of one in 20, what value is at risk here? And I think it is striking that despite how everyone felt in sort of March, April time, you're right that for some of my clients, the drawdown that they saw wasn't as big as the one in 20. So you're sort of sitting there saying, this feels horrendous and we're not actually in a one in 20 bad year, according to the modelling. And clearly it's just a model. Exactly. And I think actually that helps a lot of clients because like I talked about at the top, we've got similar to you that the mathematical models. And if anything, it shows even with this extreme event, actually the modeling held and broadly what we would expect to happen in this sort of scenario has come through. And I think that helps give people confidence in the process. Ben, do you think that that behavior has improved over the years and over the last couple of decades, perhaps, among households who were advised? I mean, I say that because I guess there's this traditional sort of cliche of the kind of individual personal investor who sort of panics and dumps all their shares at exactly the wrong time kind of thing. And I've been wondering if that is getting a bit outdated because more and more people now are advised by 
the likes of yourselves and other big firms who are much more focused on ongoing advice rather than just selling people stocks, basically, which back in those days, there maybe was more of an incentive just to get people to buy or sell, whereas the model has really changed, hasn't it? I think it has, particularly those having a professional involved. And I think that's really healthy. I think gone are the days when your objective is just to make as much money as you possibly can, pump big, go for the big 10 backers. I think now, because everyone is much more focused, quite rightly, on outcomes, what do you want to achieve? What's the best way to get that? Can you tolerate this level of risk? They're much more on this, I hate the word, this journey, this pathway, that is a lot more robust than just trying to make money by any means possible. So I think that has helped. There are always going to be actors at the edge, particularly you know, some of the hot money and the day traders that try and move these things aggressively. But I think most people now that are taking some level of professional involvement are much more outcome-based and that leads to, I think, more robust processes. I guess you were on purpose communicating more with your clients in sort of March, April, May sort of time. Did you find generally that they were quite glad you got in touch because they'd been sort of sitting at home worrying or were they sort of thinking, well, you're helping me manage my money so I wasn't even that worried in the first place? Or did you notice any themes in terms of reaction to you being in contact more? Yeah, I think most people were neutral to positive. I think some people were already relaxed. Some of them genuinely said, yeah, look, I know it's bad, but I've seen this before. We've been through this with you before, no worries. Others have actually said it's reassuring. And quite often, I'm sure you're the same, things were actually better than they thought. They see on the news that the UK market's down 30%. And you have to say, I'm sorry, your multi-asset portfolio is down 10 or 15 and has bounced. They're like, that. that's much better than I thought. So I think they're reassured. And the people that needed more engagement could then speak with a wealth manager or relationship manager and get some more info. Otherwise, just a couple of lines, people were happy with it and moved on. So I guess you referred then to markets down 30% and particular strategy or fund that your client was invested being down by less. I guess, I don't know how smooth that link is, but I was also keen to discuss your approach to sort of selecting approaches to investing. So not necessarily individual investment managers, but in general, if you've come up with an asset allocation and you think that you've got an element of active management that you might want to put into place, how do you establish in which areas you think active management should be used and in which areas actually a passive approach would be appropriate? We have quite a lot of active management across our portfolios, but our starting point is that most active managers won't add value. I mean, all of the studies show, and it makes logical sense, that your average manager net of fees can't outperform the market. But I think if you go out there and spend the time and energy and you have a suitably resourced research team, then you can find those managers in most markets that can reproducibly add value after fees over time. And that tends to be managers with a long-term time horizon as well, rather than managers trying to trade too aggressively. What we tend to do is have a core of active managers where we can take more strategic relationships. So I think even the best managers will have periods of short-term underperformance. So you need to be comfortable they'll add value over the long term. So we tend to take strategic approaches with those managers. And then we use passives either for areas where it's particularly difficult for managers to add value, areas such as government bonds, obviously gold. But also, if we want to make a tactical trade, we don't want to be giving money and taking money away from particular managers particularly those managers, of which there are many, that have defensive characteristics. There's no point, if you're getting worried on a market, taking money away from those managers that particularly can thrive in that environment. So we tend to use passives in those areas as well. And we, we've got the full range. Some portfolios are very heavily active. 
We have some that use more passive approaches as well, depending on the mandate. But our sort of base case is to use that core of active managers. You sort of referred to it just then, if you're making tactical switches or if your overall asset allocation view has developed and there are changes, how do you sort of balance a good new idea or a good new investment manager that you've identified with the costs of switching from whatever you're holding at the moment and moving into that new idea or new allocation? Most of it tends to come down to opportunity cost. That is, what do I expect from this manager? Is it an, is it an environment that we expect them to thrive in versus a new manager? Do we think they're better? They're in challenges to the first. So we tend to think in terms of opportunity cost rather than switching costs for most of the funds we use tend to be very low. But then, of course, in the portfolio construction, we want to take a bit of a blended approach. So we'll look at the other managers. If you've got, say, three managers in the UK, for argument's sake, if they're all doing exactly the same style, looking exactly the same stocks, you might feel that you're getting diversification, but you're not. Whereas if one tends to do better when sort of more valuey stocks are doing well, another's better, perhaps in a more growth area, to use a very simple example, then we look to blend those two. So we look for complementarity as well as opportunity cost, really. And when you're sort of replacing things in the portfolio, and I guess that's always a tough one to do. I mean, I think I read somewhere recently saying it's tough as an investor to know when you're being stubborn or when it's right to be holding on to your convictions, right? I mean, how would you reflect on some of the tougher decisions that you've taken in your portfolios over the years? I don't know whether that's to part ways with a manager, a particular style, a particular asset class, any sort of lessons that you've learned on that? With a manager, I think it pays to set out your expectations at the start. So when we have our investment theses, it's what do we expect, what areas do they thrive in and what conditions would challenge them. And then rather than saying, is this manager doing well or badly? It's okay, is it performing in line with the expectations or not? If we leave a manager, that's normally because what they've initially said they do and what their whole thesis is built upon, they've moved away. And that makes it easier for us because we can say they're no longer meeting our expectations. In terms of asset allocation and what I've learned, investing is all about this blend, I think, between the mathematics and the quants and what the numbers tell you, but also behavioural finance, the fact that it's not a computer doing this, it's millions of individuals making individual decisions. And as I think it was Keane said, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So I think if you've read The Black Swan, a brilliant book, and that advice is you might have an intuition or an idea, maybe say my thought, my instinct is to go all the way over here, the computer model says go all the way over here, and maybe just go halfway. So I think Overconfidence is one of the most dangerous things. I think you need some way of mitigating against that human bias and really having a, a group of peers to road test your ideas against to make sure it makes sense. Cool. A couple of great points there. So, Ben, we're pushing up against time. So, really great chat. What would you say is the one thing that you want listeners to take away from this? I think I'd like listeners to come away with the idea that to be a successful investor, in my mind, it's about focusing on your outcomes keeping a cool head and keeping a long-term time frame. Nice. Cool, calm and collected. Excellent. Easier said than done, I suppose, though, of course, as always. But that's where advisors can come in. And Ben, on a similar theme then, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Oh, well, linking to my previous point, I think it's not about trying to get all of your short-term decisions right and basically second-guessing a whole bunch of binary outcomes. It's about time and compound interest and really letting those two do the heavy lifting for you. Fantastic. Good link between the two answers there. I like it. Before we leave you, Ben, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV, film, podcast, anything like that? 
I've got dozens, but I'll keep it focused and simple for the podcast, as well as recommending my own podcast, the Tilney Investment Podcast, if I can. Of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Absolutely well worth checking out. I mean, I really love podcasts. I'll give three, but there's one, one per emotion. I've just started listening to Simon Thomas's Life Interrupted, and that's brilliant. And Simon lost his wife to cancer, sadly, a couple of years ago. But there interviews other celebrities who have gone through tough times. It's about development and how you manage through these tough times and come out stronger. And it's really interesting. That might be a bit hard going, though. So the other one I'd recommend is Cautionary Tales by Tim Harford. It's a BBC production. Loads of great bedtime stories for adults that they talk about. And I find that really interesting. But if you just want to switch off, I think there's a few things better than No Such Thing as a Fish, just done by the DLs behind the QI show. So all those fact checkers. It's brilliant. It's excellent comedy. Really good switch off podcast, that is. Fantastic. I have a long drive coming up this weekend, so I'll be sure to check out that one. Yeah, my podcast listening is generally a little bit on the more heavy side. So something lighthearted would be great, actually. So I'm going to check out that comedy one. I have listened to Cautionary Tales as well. So that, that is a really good one. I enjoyed those. So we'll put the links to all of those in the show notes. I think it's a brilliant running podcast. That's definitely my one to run to. Ben, it's been a great conversation today. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Really hope you enjoyed the show. Join us again next week for another episode. Thanks. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.